0: economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa
1: University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lawson Midland, producer and graduate assistant elect for the Gortney Institute. Today, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research, and finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. Well, welcome to our show today. We have a special guest today. With us is uh, Pastor Dakota Smith. Dakota is a pastor here at Ottawa Bible Church here in town. Uh, He did his graduate school at the grace school of theology and emphasized in pastoral ministry Dakota it's good to have you on Peter thanks so much for having me guys thanks for having me on the show so Dakota we kind of talked about before doing something on uh the pastoral series that you're going through right now the the book of Revelation uh, on how that relates to economics and that's actually something that I've pitched around with Russ and Justin a little bit uh that would be fun to kind of talk on so I'm excited that you're here to talk about it today so uh, what, what what are you thinking? What do we have to talk about?
2: Yeah, I think it's um, ironic. Maybe a better word would be sovereign that this Sunday I'm, I'm preaching on the collapse of a global world government, which the Bible actually anticipates. So if I could give a brief rundown of the book of Revelation, maybe you could say like a, a broad stroke painting of how Revelation is structured and where it's headed. Uh, Revelation chapters one through three we discover the the person of the risen Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has defeated death, resurrected from the dead, and now sits as as the champion over all humanity. All people have to give a response to this champion of life, essentially. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses the churches, and then you get to chapter 4 and 5, and you start to see the throne room of God and the emphasis of worship being given towards the Lamb of God, who is Jesus. Again, he's overcome death. Therefore, God the Father has given him the right to judge all humanity. And that those chapters in 4 and 5 are like the backdrop or the setting from which all the judgments will start to come the rest of Revelation. As Christians, um, we appeal to a number of prophetic passages in Scripture, particularly Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, which talks about a literal seven-year tribulation to come upon the earth. Um, The Bible tells us the different uh, characteristics of the world before the tribulation, Matthew chapter 24, but really Revelation chapter 6 all the way to 18 describe for us what that seven-year tribulation period will be like. I have preached through chapter 6 to chapter 16. We've dealt with the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, and by the time you get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, you have these two supplemental chapters. Maybe they could be called interlude chapters, or it's like your biblical commercial break. Where you, <laughs> kind you, of like you, what
0: we do on this podcast. Yeah, right? Half-time.
2: Yeah. Midway through, you know, provide some thought to the reader. And it's interesting because chapter 17 and 18 is trying to tell the reader, listen, in the end times, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, right before Jesus returns, what will characterize the world is a global uh, religious system that's antithetical to Christian belief. So that's a form of idolatry, but then not only the religious and the spiritual, but Revelation chapter 18 anticipates the economic or the commercial uh, nature of the world at the time. So literally the Bible is saying that At the end of the seven-year tribulation, mankind will return to their efforts that were Tower of Babel-like in nature, where society becomes godless and they try to elevate themselves as a result. So what I'm doing this Sunday, and kind of wrapping a bow on it, is I'm preaching on Revelation chapter 18, the nature of a globalistic um, world government, uh, you no longer have individual nations and their sovereignties, but you just have the antichrist ruling over the world. And as a pastor, I'm I'm trying to do my best to not superimpose like my opinions onto the text, but I'm I'm trying to do the best I can to just say this is what the Bible clearly says. But then from reading that passage, I I want to know the mind of an, an economist. <laughs> I, I even want to know the ethical implications in connection with the economy of a one world globalistic empire so maybe i'm not even wording it perfectly but i suppose that's why i'm here and i, I guess you all are
1: the help that i need for sermon prep this week
2: <laughs> Yeah, fun
1: absolutely. Topic. Well, well one of the things too that uh is kind of interesting and what drew me to the idea of discussing revelation on this podcast at all is uh, even as early as revelation 6 We start Mm -hmm. having those conversations about economics and so in revelation six there's the mention that uh in this period of time it will be a denierus for uh, a quart of wheat which basically comes out to if you want to buy a loaf of bread you have to work for a day that's basically the the translation to to modern times Mm -hmm. uh so kind of you know if we take a step back and we think well if if it's the case that that's going to be how it is someday uh given what we know now you know how much does it cost you in your time to buy a loaf of bread now uh for most people it's probably like less than an hour uh really even minimum wage I mean six dollars an hour uh actually I think it's seven in most places um you work for one hour uh seven dollars is enough to buy a loaf of bread uh so this would be a significantly different world
0: this new inflation is ramping that up a little bit to maybe an hour and 10 minutes or so but yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> well yeah, I mean even the new the
2: recent news that's come out in our our world, um, I, I like to say it just seems to me like the ideas are in the water. Uh, even if we don't necessarily experience a globalistic um, world economy yet per se, I think the ideas are are becoming more prevalent.
0: So I think that's kind of ebbed and flowed over time. Um, I think in the 80s, uh, so I was still only in high school, believe it or not, I'm 50 now. Um, but I think this globalist idea kind of surged a little bit in the 90s, um, one world government and it'd be better. And then it kind of fell apart a little bit um, at different times. So I, I feel like it, it's a pendulum that swings a bit. I, I don't think there's been, one surge that direction in a, in a direct path. I don't know. What do you think,
3: Justin? Um, I think it's been pretty constant, but I also think it goes back, like a a worry about this type of thing goes back to the 1880s. You know, I think that you can find people um, saying this kind of thing uh, and truthfully saying it, right, Right. uh, about the British empire, um mm-hmm. which sure. uh, you know didn't fall apart until uh World War one um so uh yeah I and, and that's not to say like um these aren't these aren't real worries right this it is just to say that uh this seems like it has been uh constant and constantly worrying
0: you know i don't know my history that well but were we the first major group to break away from the brits and they had kind of spread through large parts of the world uh was our breaking off in 1776 one of the first pushbacks to that
3: does anybody know i I, seriously i'm not that big of a it is the nature of empire to always be subjugating the people who it, (laughs) it reigns over right uh we were the we are the successful ones right uh, and we've uh, been trying to
2: you know export that success ever since um, yeah yeah i mean i think i can just add to <clears throat> one thing that revelation has been anticipating is this this the rise of the seventh world empire so if we go by um biblical allusions and references you start with egypt you move to assyria um you move to babylon then you move to Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And each of these empires possess somewhat of a, a globalistic feel. You know, they they conquer um, and they use vassal states underneath their uh, subjection to, to rule the world, essentially. And each of them has failed. But, you know, the number seven in the book of Revelation is a number of completion, a number of perfection, almost as if to say, yeah, all of these were just foreshadowings. But when the real deal comes, the final complete seventh world empire, it will really ramp up. And, you know, I don't even know if as a Christian, I have to insert this opinion, but maybe just regardless of my worldview and my theology, if I just look at the interconnectedness of the world that we have by way of media right now, at least it's seeming way more plausible to me today than it ever would have in in the past. Um, given the fact that we can connect on things like zoom and we have access to anybody within a minute. Um, I think you start to lose your individual subcultures of people and and really the culture becomes predicated based on what's what's being displayed in the media. So I I see it trending in that direction, even if there is a ebb and a, a
1: flow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I, I I would agree with that, too you know, I, I think technology has made this more feasible. One really, you know, good example of this recently is that the Federal Reserve has been talks about creating like a fully digital US currency, uh, sort of like in a, a Bitcoin blockchain style, uh, though not nearly, uh, not all the good benefits of Bitcoin, like a stable supply or anything like that, uh, but just that it'd be totally digital, totally online uh if that were to happen if if we were to move to a purely digital currency that means every transaction is trackable um and so this is something that we can't imagine you know 200 years ago with like cash you wouldn't be able to in a world dominated by cash pull up somebody's name on a computer and just say sorry you're not able to make a purchase this month because you did x y or z last month Uh, that would not be possible uh, but in a digital currency world, it could be. In fact, uh, places like China, you actually already see this to a certain extent.
3: One thing that I think Dakota said that, that I think is really important. Um, so I mentioned like World War One and like the British Empire before, and I remember I had an economics professor in college who said that um, as a percentage of trade, the world was actually more interconnected right before World War One than it was all the way up until the mid '90s, um, like <laughs> um, in terms of like globalized trade. And so you could make the argument that, like, oh, well, the world was this interconnected before. But what the what Dakota said, and that I think is really important, is about a monoculture, mm-hmm. and yeah, um, yes, and that I think is something that we haven't seen before, like a a, a globalized culture rather than just a, a world of many cultures that might just be connected um, economically.
0: And it, there seems to be a growing culture clash. You know, the entrepreneurial economics class that I teach uh, talks about the collectivist culture versus the individualistic. And if individualistic has these material gains through trade and individual freedom, blah, 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 then is the world ultimately converging to that type of culture? You know, is Western culture where we're going to naturally gravitate to as sinful beings and wanting material gains to even climb out of poverty? I don't mean to paint a bad brush on that. Obviously, I'm a big believer in it, but uh, pulling... Uh, reducing poverty and, and other things. So that, along with, I think, your insight on uh, Zoom and other things and digital currency, you know, you do start to see that becoming more of a possibility. The clash that I was thinking about was China, the growth of China and China's investments in Africa and, um, you know, the current conflicts that are going on. Not sure how that's all going to play
1: out. Have you all uh, heard about the World Economic Forum and their policy? I think this is something that they're really wanting to push is a, a global world government. And that might be the front of
2: what we're seeing today. Yeah, I mean, and, and that kind of goes back to the idea of, well, the I, I think the idea has always been in the water, but as society has progressed, we now have a greater interconnectedness to share those ideas, right? And I think that's that's where I can see validation in what the Bible is is claiming. Um, going back to what Justin said with a, a monoculture, um, you know, one thing that I see clearly dividing, I don't know if y'all are familiar with um, the book, A Strange New World, uh, just came out. And it's really about the uh, the rise and the elevation of the self. You know, do we determine truth within ourselves or is truth absolute and is it outside of ourselves? In other words, the drift from culture between absolute truth and, and subjective truth. What I'm seeing arise in the world is it is really an elevation of internal truth. You know, you you own your truth, you do you. But at the end of the day, if truth is determined from within, then and truth no longer exists at all. Well, then nobody has a right to be upset about anything. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. And that matches what's called Babylonianism, the rise of the self, a godless society, which says we don't need God, but we'll, we'll elevate the self. And I think that affects, you know, economic policies. I think that affects culture. I think that affects all the different endeavors that a society pursues, business, government, education, the family, media, entertainment, so on and so forth.
0: All right, well, this yeah. looks like a good spot for our uh, for our break. And when we come back, I think we'll extend um, what we're talking about here with the globalist culture. I know Justin is an expert on truth, uh, so <laughs> that's what he tells me anyway. So I'll be looking to hear uh, what his thoughts are on, on uh, things around the world regarding truth. So we'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith in economics and action. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we will have an integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today.
3: Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University.
1: The Gordon Institute is offering free economics classes to homeschool students in the Ottawa area. Uh, In these classes, we'll cover things like scarcity, supply and demand, and some common economic fallacies. We're running through our first course right now, the first section, with students, and they're really enjoying it. If you're interested in having a class for yourself or one of your children, uh, please contact Peter, Justin, or us today.
0: If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or
2: reoccurring donation. Please visit the Gortney page on the Ottawa website.
0: Okay, we're back. Um, So I put the heat on our philosophy PhD guy over here on truth, something that I thought it was almost kind of strange when you first told me when we started talking to each other about what your uh, PhD and kind of some interests were. So truth
3: seeker and truth teller, what do you got to say? So I agree with Dakota that there is something going on with the concept of truth um, that that involves the abandonment of objectivity, right? Um, ob- objective truth being a truth that isn't, you know, that is true regardless of whether anyone believes it. That is what it means for a truth to be objective—that mm-hmm. um, a proposition is true regardless of whoever believes it, right? And I, I do—I'm um, sympathetic to the claim that there's been a rise in, you know, a kind of relativism or subjectivism about truth. But I actually don't think that that's really what's going on insofar as I think that um, subjectivism and relativism are both incoherent, you know, a, a pure subjectivist about truth, I have to say, you know, truth is just whatever you believe, right? And I think it's, um, I think that's actually conceptually incoherent. But I also don't think that that's actually kind of what we see happening. I do think what we see is the abandonment of objective truth, but I think what we're actually seeing is just kind of an equation of truth with power, because it's not the case that, you know, the people at the top of the cultural hegemony right now are saying, Just believe whatever you want to believe, right? What they are saying is (laughs) you have to believe exactly what we tell you to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But what they have abandoned is any requirement that they rationally justify those beliefs, right? So it's not your
2: presupposition for why you're pushing this.
3: Yeah. Yeah. They have abandoned the requirement that they explain themselves and and justify themselves with reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I completely agree that um, it's that the abandonment of objectivity is a huge problem and this and elite. Le- and I do think that it is conceptually incoherent to do it. Um, and I, I think that you always, when you try this, you end up with a kind of just naked assertion of power.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's interesting. Yeah.
2: Fame, fortune, power, pleasure. Those are the top four, okay. right? And And you see, I think the assertion of this relativism because what it What it results in is fame, fortune, power, pleasure for those who are in control.
0: Right. Yeah. So, uh, Dakota, you want to lead us through? You wanted to read something out of Revelation? Yes.
2: For some more discussion? I mean, uh, goodness, there's too much scripture. In fact, the Bible can be bifurcated between really two cities, um, God's city and the city of the world. Um, The city of the world is what characterizes anything in opposition to God, the city uh, or the kingdom of God Himself is the the rule and the reign of God in the hearts of His people, but also possessing the the revelation of um, what's called general revelation. Of whether you worship God or not, um, you you know that He's there. Um, he has built it in the conscience of humanity. So you you have these two cities: one that honors or at least acknowledges God, versus one that's in complete. Uh, rejection of him. And I think the culmination of these two cities or these two kingdoms is found in Revelation 18 and 19. 18 is the fall of the world system and 19 is the return of Jesus where uh, he returns with his people and he establishes what's called the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Some would say that's metaphoric, others would say that's literal. Either way, there's the basic Christian belief is Jesus is going to return and set up a kingdom where righteousness really dwells. This is what a righteous king looks like on earth at a global level. Um, But first, the fall, and that would be Revelation 18. Let's just read verses 9 through 19. Uh, You hear the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the sea traders of the earth, weeping and wailing because their abusive world system had fallen. It says, and the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, her being the seductive world system, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear for torment, saying, woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour, your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and even human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things, who became rich from her, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city. She who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which All who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Maybe I should extend it to verse 20, which rejoices at this fall and anticipates the coming of Jesus. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. In other words, all those who stood for God's city, Old and New Testament, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So there's an eschatological and end times picture to this fall of a a destructive oppressive globalistic system
0: so i could see some people saying um something along the lines of see capitalism is evil and that in the end it'll all fall apart mm-hmm. um i would disagree with that so I as you well. uh as you were saying that i i translated it into principles of economics and thought okay so we have an asset uh crash, right? Mm-hmm. so it's like a stock market crash. The value of all assets have gone down. Why has it gone down? I think there was a decrease in demand because now people are all sick and tormented. Imagine you being at home with uh, COVID, imagine, uh, and yeah. you're real tore apart. Yeah. Um, you're not running to the store and buying stuff, right? So yeah. imagine that if all of society was sick and tormented, the demand for anything just falls apart. And so the merchants can't sell their what they used to sell for they'd be lucky to get two bucks for. Basically, there's no market, the total crash of the market. Mm. Peter, what do you think on that analysis? You love it or hate it?
1: Um, Yeah, you know, it's a a little bit tricky in terms of the, the timeline of Revelation to figure out exactly what the judgment was that caused the fall of the world system. And so people who take this city to be a literal city called babylon like babylon recreated might say well no this has to be some sort of like actual judgment that destroys the trading hub uh but i tend to take babylon there to mean the world system in which case yeah i think uh you see throughout revelation a lot of a lot of plagues and things that uh harm the the economy as a whole but it does seem like there's something that happens that we're not totally privy to uh because there's the comment throughout that scripture that in one hour the judgment came and so it seems like something else has happened i have no idea what uh that's a good question the judgment took on some form that was sudden but yeah i I do agree that uh there's been significant economic damage due to demand and supply shocks even before this the straw that
2: breaks the camel's back of this world system in other words that's the one hour even if it's not
1: literal but metaphoric it's it's a very short time frame yeah yeah absolutely gosh in terms of what it amounts to with the world system you know the the whole ca- is it capitalism being bad thing one quick way out of this is like the the system that exists the world system that exists in revelation yeah if we're to read it closely clearly isn't a form of capitalism it's some form of state-controlled economy because people can for example be excluded from making any purchases at all uh yeah. you know if, if they don't pledge their allegiance to uh the to Babylon and the world system the mm-hmm. uh, so so yeah, exactly. So so it, there's not really a, a, a free trade, but, but I would say like there is a sort of commentary that here that love of wealth, and that would be like an unhealthy love of the things of the world is immoral. And anybody in a system, uh, regardless of what that system looks like, who makes an idol out of the wealth they can achieve, uh, those people are going to be uh, mourning and, and weeping, regardless of what the system looks like.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. So it, you might look at it as a uh a fall of the communist state that presumably has come about through this power and ubiquitous culture and uh, one global currency, et cetera. Some of the stuff that we've mentioned earlier actually ends up collapsing and due to maybe some things we don't fully understand from the passage, but um, rather than it being a jab, but I think a a non-econ person's read of that would kind of think, oh, okay, the market system is bad and ultimately is our demise. And i would probably counter that that i think the market system is still alive and well in heaven
3: but that's a whole nother podcast i tend to think that this debate is actually a little bit like inconsequential insofar as if you if the reading is that we don't actually understand what that final straw is you know marx's conception of capitalism is that capitalism collapses due to its own contradictions right and that's a criticism of capitalism but if uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back here isn't internal to capitalism, then I don't see what the problem would be, even if it were a capitalist system
1: that gets, uh, you know, upended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think ultimately the important point is uh, we see the morning and the reason for the morning, right? And the reason for the morning by the merchants and the rulers and the shipfarers is that uh, you know, you see uh, them say, for no one will buy our goods anymore, right? And so okay. these are people whose lives are motivated by the wealth they can obtain. And th- that's basically the idol of their life. And so they love the the quote unquote great city uh, because it allows them to have the thing that they love, their idol, which is wealth. And I think that that's possible under every economic system. I think that's possible under mercantilism, socialism, communism, capitalism. It doesn't matter. Uh, wealth can always be an idol in someone's life. Uh, because anything that's uh, good, which by the way, wealth is good. It can be a good thing. But anything that's good can be made into the ultimate. And that's what an idol is. When something that's not the ultimate is made into the ultimate.
2: Yeah, I think just to add to from a theological framework, I was looking at Revelation 13. Because the, the context of Revelation 18 is, is super key. So Revelation 13, this is the famous chapter of the Mark of the Beast and his false prophet. And it just says, he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And the basic idea of the fall of Revelation 18 or the fall of Babylon is these individuals love the beast they they love the antichrist he in his personhood validates i guess for lack of a better word to put it their moral values so they're they're becoming rich off of their allegiance to him and when Christ returns in 19 he not only destroys the system but he destroys the ruler of the system which the world also loved so there's a lot of different uh, pieces to this puzzle but I think that's and i'm a little means.
0: foggy on well the revelation timing so the uh the beast rules for is that a thousand years and then christ ushers in the new millennial or give me the timing no, of the sequence there
2: so revelation would share that there's a seven-year tribulation period according to daniel daniel chapter seven the first three and a half years um the antichrist people won't necessarily know that he's the Antichrist, but the world will love him.
0: And, and this is, the, that seven is like what we're doing now, then there's a seven that starts, right? The world is as we know it now or whatever it is, yeah, maybe, maybe 200 years from now or whatever. But I mean, it, the world's been ongoing and now tribulation starts for this seven-year timeframe.
2: Yeah, okay. and I, I would argue that only God knows the day that that literal seven-year period begins. Sure, But Revelation 13 tells us that Um, This beast, the Antichrist, will receive a fatal wound to his forehead. Um, Revelation 13, 3 to 6, uh, Revelation 13, 12, and Revelation 13, 14, all declare that this Antichrist, and by the way, let me just give a little more context. Anti can mean instead of Christ or Christos, just means Messiah. So this anti-Messiah or this person who is given instead of the Messiah, maybe you could say Jesus is God's man, the Antichrist is Satan's man. When he comes on the scene, he will appear to be this convincing world ruler, Mm -hmm. receive a supposed fatal wound to his head and try to mock or bring about a parody of the resurrection. So then the second three and a half year period uh, to finish the tribulation, that's where things really heat up and things get really ugly. And he demands allegiance. And if you're in allegiance to him, then you're part of this world system. So and then.
0: uh and then tell me about when the Jesus millennia kicks in, that's after the seven?
2: Yeah, that, that's the hope of the Christian is at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns to literally confront evil once and for all. Evil has become accentuated to its highest point. Um, maybe you could see it as a birth, you know, in the early gestational periods, the baby's small, but when the baby's fully born, it, it's there. So evil has fully been birthed and Jesus returns to confront it and to say, the evil kings and the instead of christ he ruled in this way but i will show the world what a righteous king really rules like
0: and this is the start of the new heaven and new earth
2: the start of the millennium so some would say you have a a literal thousand year reign of christ to fulfill jewish prophecy Mm -hmm. he's still the jewish messiah or some would say that's metaphorical i don't know if i really care yeah. But afterwards, then comes the final judgment. Then, after the final judgment, comes new heavens, new earth. And
0: okay, that's what the Bible and Away goes. we
2: go for turn. where we go. Away we go. Yes. Okay. Yep.
0: Well, there's an old movie. I'm curious if you guys have seen it. Uh, the Omen, yeah. 1970s. Damien. <laughs> freaked me out as a kid. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was a really freaky movie. Have oh, you seen man. it,
3: Justin? The Dobermans, right? Yeah. 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 Oh,
0: man. Oh my gosh. That's a freaky movie. So that. Peter's that like, yeah, pretty, I, I think that, that movie, that movie does do a pretty good job of characterizing what you just said, though, of how, yeah. how the Antichrist is ushered into the world. Um, at least for me, anyway, what you just described, I, I yeah. thought about that movie. So,
2: I suppose I have a question for Justin, if that's okay, just with your understanding of truth and the history of the world. Uh, you know, the Bible depicts a, a time where because the events of the world heat up so badly they're they are crying out for a leader one of the reasons why the nations say we're going to strip off our sovereignty but we we can't handle ourselves with you know the the next issue at a worldwide level um can you foresee based on human history a world coming to the conclusion to say that one man right there we we want him to lead us or is is that characteristic of of society in the past
3: Oh man, I think that question is like way beyond my pay grade. <laughs> uh, so uh, I deal with things like uh, I well, I should make good on the on the thing I said earlier that like relativism is incoherent and tell you exactly like why it's incoherent or mm. or even like uh, subjectivism, right? Which is um, the claim that truth is whatever you believe, right? That itself is a claim. It is right, and um, for it to be true that the truth is whatever you believe. Um, you could also believe that the truth is not whatever you believe right and so <laughs> the claim that the truth is whatever you believe can't be true um because you can believe that the truth isn't whatever you believe right mm-hmm. so it's it's radically self-undermining in that way
2: mm-hmm.
3: um and uh so that's the the way in which any form of global relativism or skepticism is just um is self-undermining um and so uh i deal with like Linguistic issues like sure. that, not so much like the history of <laughs> sure. Uh, so that's a
0: philosopher geeking out, I think. That, yeah, right?
2: that's fair.
3: Um, <laughs> that being said, do I think that it uh, that people tend to, you know, cling to a leader? Yeah, they do, especially when things go badly, right? Yeah. Um, there's a reason FDR, you know, got elected so many times
0: mm-hmm. um,
3: and, and it's not just that like that this happens a lot. It happens usually almost whenever there is a big kind of um cultural shock. Mm-hmm. Uh and it it's not that they, that people gravitate towards leaders and believe things that are untrue. They believe crazy things. Yeah. Uh you know, people <laughs> didn't realize that FDR was uh handicapped. Yeah. Uh, and that would, if you look back in that's like obvious that he's just <laughs> wheeling around. He has his own, uh, you know, subway station built in New York. So the capacity of people to suspend their uh, their judgment and just be totally credulous in times of crisis, I think is, well, is really.
0: And I'm one to believe that uh, this Antichrist that comes about, let's not forget that there's going to be some extra special almost uh superpowers that come about uh that satan enables uh him or her with
2: yeah
0: um I, I think deception yeah and, and i think the the screw tape letters by c.s lewis uh, was very influential for me on how the tempters can do gentle nudging over time and that's what kind of shapes part of the culture and that will will slowly usher us into a position that all of a sudden oh that makes sense this guy this guy is a good leader and maybe this globalist idea is a good idea and look at we they can reduce poverty and people are you know what i mean i i, I that doesn't seem too far-fetched that that can happen and i think there are examples in argentina and all whatever of other populist type leaders that have really been able to garner the respect and of the people mm-hmm. well feel like
3: oh go ahead
1: yeah i was just gonna say justin um you're gonna have to remind me of the name, it, it slips my head, uh, writes about Abraham and Isaac, uh, philosopher Kierkegaard. I, I came to it myself. Uh, so I know you do a lot of work on, uh, or in, in class on Kierkegaard. And so one of the interesting things is that I actually do think that this uh, tendency to put faith in something that you don't fully understand actually can be a good thing, uh, provided that the faith is put in the right spot. And so, like, Kierkegaard's got this whole uh, story, you know, he's got the whole writing about how uh, when Abraham is sacrificing Isaac, he's basically committing to have faith in something that, like, he believes something that shouldn't make any sense to him, but he's willing to put the faith in it because, you know, it's God making the promise. And so it's kind of like a part of human nature, I think, that we're willing to put faith in things that we don't fully understand. The problem is you have to make sure that that's the right thing, right? Right. And so, uh, putting your faith in a loving God is one thing. Putting your faith in like a ruler who says, uh, "No, I was dead. I totally came back from the dead." Uh, like we we hear in Revelation, the Antichrist will do. Or you know, in the case of like certain rulers, like the FDR thing, like no, he's, he doesn't have a he doesn't have a handicap, the wheelchair. He just does that for fun or something like that. <laughs> so so the, the the point is uh, not that we shouldn't put our faith in anything, only that we should put our faith in the right things. I think
2: yeah yeah and i think also this goes back to um if truth is objective it, that also means it can be learned from from the past i'm not necessarily appealing to pragmatism you know just but I, i'm saying if if something is timelessly true then you should be able to learn from it at, at a timeless level so one thing that abraham was dealing with is um you know 20 years walking in relationship with yahweh before god finally calls him look trust me and abraham in the scriptures actually displayed the first faith in a resurrection i mean that's why he went through with it i i believe god is able to resurrect my son and and the god ultimately says no you're not going to have to do that but i'll resurrect my own son on your behalf so i think that faith is never necessarily necessarily blind faith is actually dependent based on facts so you know i have faith in this Share because I I see that it's it ha, it has a certain amount of uh, structural integrity to it. So I don't know if I'm making a point or validating. Yeah. That no, right no.
0: Well, this looks like a good spot to wrap. Uh, any final words for,
2: to cap things off? I think we did a pretty good job there. So go ahead. I think ahead. I'll just share one more thing. You know, as as Christians, this um, these you know we believe in the scriptures. Um, But it's important for Christians to not be so captivated by like all the crazy things of the world. And instead, my encouragement as a pastor would be, well, while God tells you what to be aware of, there are certain things you still keep at your peripheral. And then the focus still remains your love for Jesus, your love for people and your hope for his return. We know this will happen. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that nobody has to undergo anything like this, because God through his son has has born the punishment for for all all judgment um the hope of jesus christ is that because he loves you he's done what's necessary to reconcile you to god and i i think as christians it's dangerous for us to be more concerned i'm, I'm going to say this yeah. on sunday more concerned about how everything's fitting together and mm-hmm.
1: um we don't have to worry about that yeah
2: that's not our first priority the first priority is god i i trust you this will happen but um my hope is in you. Help me to love people as I'm here today. So,
0: All right. Well put. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. Uh, Dakota, appreciate you coming on and sharing sharing your thoughts here on Revelation. I think it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you like what you hear, please forward along to your friends. A five-star rating helps other people find us. And we do have a Gortney Institute donate button on our website if you want to continue uh, to support us uh, financially as well. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.